0: I love this series, I hope, I hope you do, I, this is significant for me. Um, we're just talking about the reality that you and I, we become children of God. Our theme verse really is, and I'll be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We've been talking about what does that mean, we've really been looking at the great commandment in some measure, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind and all your strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about loving your neighbor, the people in the church. <laughs> We talked about loving your neighbor, the people outside the church, and you do know that's harder than it sounds, right? It's not as easy as it sounds. Sometimes it's hard to love the people in the church because they're not all as lovable as you are. Sometimes it's hard. They don't always love back the way we would like them to do. And sometimes, sometimes when we say those kind of messages, we kind of lay a pressure on each other. See, I don't know how many people are in your life, but I still am mentoring a number of young people, younger people than me. Of course, almost everybody's younger than me these days. But <laughs> so I'm mentoring these people. But I can't do more than eight or ten people. It just gets too big. It's impossible. And then we talked about loving people outside the church. And, and, and you can't love a whole community. You can't love a whole city, folks. You, you love the people. God, please hear my heart. God doesn't love Peterborough. He doesn't. He loves the people in Peterborough. God loves people one at a time, and if you're going to love people outside the kingdom, you need to love them one at a time, and we love the people that God brings across our path and puts on our pathway, so we love them, and I don't know about you, but I can't do more than three or five of those at any moment, sometimes as little as two. I'm glad to always have somebody in my life who's outside the kingdom that I pray for, that I love. I trust that you're doing that as well. That's part of love. That's part of being loved by God and learning to love Him back. But there's a special focus on love today I want us to look at, which I don't think we talk about enough. I hope it goes well. I'm not sure because I'm going to maybe stretch a few of you today just a little bit. It stretches me, but it doesn't mean it's not true. You see, the reality it is, while we love God and we love people, that includes us. And while it is also true that we are the children of God, just like God doesn't love Peterborough, He loves the people of Peterborough, He doesn't just love us collectively. He loves us individually. The children of God are made up of ordinary people that God loves you and me. You personally, you are a child of God. God loves you. That's radical. That's life-changing. I live in the sense that God loves me. I'm I'm not telling you I deserve it. I can't tell you you deserve it. I just know it's true because God declares it to be true. Would you say it out loud? I am a child of God. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell them, I am a child of God. Oh, you lost conviction there. You did it better when you said it out loud to yourself. Let's do it one more time. With conviction, turn to your neighbor and say, I am a child of God. See, whether you believe it or not, it's still true. This is so personal. This is so real. When you get to know God, you actually get to have a father. God the father makes you his child. And just like parents want their children to turn out well, even though the children are flawed and sinful, even though the parents are flawed and sinful, like that, the father who is perfect invests himself in our lives so that we can become more than we could ever be without him. We become his Children. No, no, we become a child of God. And He wants us to know something. If we're really going to be in love with the Father and we're really going to be loved by the Father, He wants us to know something that really matters. And we find it again in the Great Commandment. Really important. Uh, Sorry, let me go to it. Love the Lord with all your heart, Lord God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this love your neighbor as yourself. God actually not only really expects us to love Him and our neighbor, both inside and outside the church, but this is radical. God actually expects us to love ourselves. Now, if I'm not going to ask you to do this, but if I asked you to say, I love me, most of you would have a hard time doing that. But God loves you. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> this love your neighbor as yourself, as yourself, makes us more like Jesus. And the truth is, if the Father loves us, we don't have the right not to love us. If the Father loves me, I don't have the right not to love me. We're not talking about worthiness here. We're not. We're talking about the fact that somebody loves us as we are. Maybe too much to leave us that way, but he loves us as we are to the point there should be some measure of self-love. Now, our view has skewed all of this, of course. Everybody has a degree of self-love. When Jesus said that to the scribe, we all have a degree of self-love. Everybody does. That's why you don't put your hand on a hot burner in a stove. That's why you don't step on into traffic when there's big transports coming, because we protect our bodies. That's why we, we do that. We try to protect our children, because there's a degree of self-love. That's when we get offended when people hurt us, because there's a degree of self-love. It's not necessarily healthy, but there is a degree of self-love. But at the same time, so many of us in the church are so aware of our sin, and we should be, we'll come to that in a minute, and so aware of our weaknesses and the things about ourselves we don't like that we could hardly imagine God loving us because we don't really love us. And sometimes when we get into this world we look around and we just, you know what we do, we just kind of ignore it. We just kind of move on. We live life as it comes, day by day. And we live with an awful lot of self-awareness that's missing. Now, I don't know if you could have a little humor handle it a little bit or not. Just, uh, you know, there's so little self-awareness. You know that some people have too much time in their hands, right? So so just bear with me. I ran across this a few years ago. The Food and Brand Lab from the University of Illinois actually did a study on people's self-awareness and what they were like and what people were like and who they were and what they thought of themselves using soup called the psychology of soup. Now, I'm going to give you five choices. You get to pick one only. Are you ready? Okay. How many of you, what's your favorite soup? How many of you would like chicken, don't have to put your hand yet. How many would like chicken noodle soup? The second option is tomato soup. The third option is vegetable soup. The fourth option is New England clam chowder. And the fifth option is chili beef. So, let me go through them again. Chicken noodle, tomato, vegetable, New England clam chowder, or chili beef. Now, how many of you chose chicken noodle? Let me see your hands. You chose chicken noodle. Well, here's what their study discovered. You were witty, loyal, and relaxed. You were likely either into either photography or quilting. How many men raised their hand for this one? You were likely to be a home buddy. You were likely to have a fondness for talk shows. You were warm and fuzzy. Now you're afraid to do the next one, I know. How many of you chose tomato? Be brave. How many chose tomato? Okay. Here's what it says. You are creative. You read a lot of books and magazines. You look to be intellectually stimulated, but occasionally read stuff that's very light and absolutely meaningless. You were intellectual and searching. You didn't know that soup could tell you all this, did you? How about vegetable? How many vegetable fans do we have? Oh, vegetable didn't do well here. Let me see again. How many? Oh, okay, a few. All right, all right. You were a risk taker and a trendsetter. Aren't you glad some of you had your hands raised for this? More of you wish you'd raise your hand now. You were outgoing. You were often a church stalwart. Oh my goodness, that doesn't say a lot good about our church, does it? We didn't have nearly enough vegetable people. However, you do have a weakness for desserts. You're courageous and personable. Huh. How many New England clam chowder people do we have? Oh, good crowd. Okay, here's what it said about you. You were sophisticated, intellectual, athletic, and sociable. You do have a, comp- you have a tendency To be competitive and sarcastic, you were disciplined and edgy. Uh, One more, here we go. How many chili beef people do we have? This is usually the most popular, I think. You were a hearty sort. You were likely to be male. Just saying it for all you ladies who raised your hand. You were definitely a social animal. You were boisterous and friendly. I'm not really sure how that would help your self-awareness or not, but I thought we should have a little humor today as we went along. You do know that bookstores are filled with books on self-awareness and loving yourself and liking yourself and how, how to be happy with who you are, and it goes on, and there's hundreds of them. And right now, lots of churches do all kinds of testings and tools to see how people are going to work together based on their personality and how they see themselves and the gifts they think they bring. And so, the latest ones I've been through are Strength Finder. These are all these domains of leadership, executing, influencing, patent, relationship building, strategic thinking, and all these. sub. By the time we were through this, I was so confused. And then there's Berkman, which is the big granddaddy of them all. How how many of Anybody who done Berkman here? Oh, quite a number. Great. That's good. The real question is there are two schools of thought in our world, I think. Both of them in the church. One's more predominant in the church. One's more predominant in the world. The one school of thought is overly negative. There are a whole lot of people that would argue there's nothing in ourselves that we should love. To actually even talk about loving yourself is ungodly and unspiritual. Not even smart, not wise, wrong to do. There were many who would see the human condition as broken and radical and decidedly unhealthy and certainly sinful. And there's a truth to that. There is a truth to that. And there's a struggle for many of us to actually admit that their self-love is even possible. And unfortunately, this view is often predominant in the church, that self-love should be stroked out, should not be accepted. And being radically unhealthy, sinful, hopeless, and helpless is the real condition And the church doesn't really make room for us. Hmm. Friends, it is true that we are sinners. It is true that we should be offended by sin. God is. But it's also true that you and I have been loved by God. God steps into our lives and He still loves us. That's That's why He came to earth. God was not surprised when He saw your life and how you lived it. And God came and sent His Son, and he died, and he rose again so you could know that you were loved by God. Anyway, regardless, that's how it works. And, and we, we, we perpetuate this negativity so easily, though. What you know, the most famous hymn in all of Christendom? What is it? The most famous hymn around the world, whether you're a Christian or not, is? Amazing grace. Do you know one of the lines in Amazing Grace? It says, that, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. For all of us who are negative about humanity, we like that. We like that. The reality is, John Newton, who wrote this, was wretched. He had a praying mother, but he went out, he became a slave trader, Folks. He was capturing people, and other people captured them for him, and he bought them in Africa and brought them to the United States. He sold human beings for a living. He was wretched. But one day in the middle of a storm, standing in the bow of his boat, God got a hold of his soul from a praying mother. And he got saved and gave his life to Jesus and wrote the song, Amazing Grace. This is not a testimony for all of us. This is testimony. But he is a further one. Look what He said, I am not the man I ought to be, I am not the man I wish to be, and I am not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I am not the man I used to be. We're not wretches, friends. We're not. The word wretched is only found twice in Scripture, and Paul talks about the wretched man that he is. He actually says that he said I. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death in Romans? But Paul is not applying that to the universal church. He's not applying that to you or I. Not everything in the Scripture fits all of us, folks. One of the mistakes we make in Scripture is we take a truth and a promise given to an individual, and we think it's universal. He's not saying that all of you are wretches. He's not saying that. He says that about himself. No wonder he stood and watched them stone Stephen and held the colts while they did it. Paul never applies that to the church. He never applies that to you or I. He never does that. He doesn't do it. The only other place it's found is in Revelation. And this is a church, letters are being written to seven churches. And waited to see it was in bad shape, not very spiritual. And it talks about them being wretched and pitiful, poor and blind and naked. But it's a reference to a church, a particular church at a particular time. Not talking about us. Not talking about us see here here's the deal folks it's easy to beat ourselves up even hymns remind us that we ought to do it there's another old hymn I love this one alas and did my savior bleed do you know that remember that hymn anybody remember that besides me am I the only one old enough alas and did my savior bleed and did my sovereign die would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I isn't that a great picture of you don't, don't turn to your neighbor and say, I'm just a worm. Don't, please don't do that. No, no. Because see, the truth is, the worm is only found four times in Scripture. Twice it talks about people being dead, dying. Once it talks about people worm their way into other people's affections so they can control the environment, and one of them is a word that talks about connected to some star somewhere. There is nowhere in the Scripture that God ever calls you wretched, and there's nowhere in the Scripture He calls you a worm. Worm. It's not there. Do you know what He does say about you? It says that you've been made in the image of God. So it overcomes sin, which is selfish. It overcomes selfishness, which is sin. But you and I have been transformed, and even though the guilty are still punished, we are transformed yet because we have been made in the image of God. You were the only part of creation made in God's image. You are. You are amazing. There's no other part of creation like you. You're the only part. This, I love this. You're the only part of creation that can think and think about your thinking. Have you ever had a thought and wonder why I thought that? No other part of creation could do that. But the image of God, and we know this, has been marred and broken by sin. But here's the good news. When we get to know God, when we come to know Jesus, God steps in and He restores the image of God in us. He takes away the judgment of sin and the penalty of sin, and He calls us His child. I am His child. And the God who designed me and created me, blesses me and heals me and defends me and forgives me and loves me, we have been transformed by the grace of God because we now are are His children. Somebody ought to be thankful for that. This is incredible. It's amazing. That's what God does. That's who God is. We don't have a right to beat ourselves up. We ought to see the potential in us that God sees us. It's really hard to love others, folks, when we don't really love ourselves. And yet that love has to be a healthy love. It just I just want to remind you today that we're children of God. I am a child of God. Would you say it again out loud, I'm a child of God. I always carry that with me. I'm a child of God. The second view is overly optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) And we ought to love ourselves. Love is part of reality, and we live in a world that if we just loved everybody, everybody would be great, and inside the human race is this absolute wonder, and if we just let people be themselves, they will transform everything we've ever imagined. They'll overcome all the negative of the world, and the world doesn't really say that. I mean, they say it, it's called narcissism, and we become so, so self-aware. I've read too much psychology in my life. I have a master's degree in counseling, so I've read too much of it, that it is just a if we just do the right things, we'll just become amazing. Well, that's not true either. The despicable the, the looking of human life is not true, but the greatness of human life is not really true either. Sometimes in Scripture we can become so self-loving we become arrogant, and God is never talking about that. And the problem with this view is if you love yourself too much, then you become self-centered. You become narcissistic. You become selfish. You actually believe the world is about you, that you are enough. And it makes us greedy and selfish and not kind and not nice. Sometimes we could make it all about us. But, you know, the world still goes on around us. It's all about me, not really, you see. Um... We hear about shootings in schools. We wonder how anybody could do that. Well, you're watching the news lately, they have they've, a school bus driver, nice, everybody loved him. And one day he took a bus and he drove it through the window of a nursery. Toddlers and killed two toddlers. Will the war in Ukraine ever end? See, it's not all better all the time, folks. So I don't think either of these are really the answer because Maybe we're more human than we want to admit and maybe this person has it right. Self-love is generally represented as a base affection of the mind and doubtless it is so as it exists in fallen man because it is always inordinate and is always excessive. And yet God doesn't make mistakes. God tells us to love our neighbor, yes, as we love ourselves. So there's got to be an answer to this dilemma. What's God's view? How does God see this? So here's the deal. Does God really love me? Absolutely. He comes with love and grace, and He steps into our lives. And God sees it in a way that is definitely different than the one the world would see. He's not overly negative. He's not overly optimistic. He sees us different. And with healthy self-esteem, it is compatible and possible to actually have God's love in us, and perhaps for the first time, if we can see us as God sees us, we can actually learn to love ourselves in a healthy way. Way And I believe it starts with God. We can't really know and can't really love ourselves without knowing that we are loved. I don't deserve God's love, and neither do you. But I'm loved by Him. So are you. More than anybody in this world loves you, God loves you. More than you love yourself, God loves you. You are loved by God. If we could only understand that, if we could only grasp that, it changes everything. It changes everything. And so God says, I want you to love yourself the way Jesus loved you. And Jesus came sacrificing Himself. He gave His life. He died on our behalf so we could know the love of God. Well, how does sacrifice look in our lives? Well, it looks like this. It's called surrender. We love ourselves with the same kind of love we got, get from Jesus, and it is called surrender. This is not easy, friends. This is not, this is not really simple. This is not easy at all. It's been a difficult journey for me. I really hesitated how to share this with you today, and yet it's so important. When I became a believer, I had already been in the public a lot. I was did debating in high school and I did public speaking in public school. I was used to being on a platform. And when I became a believer, (laughs) 30 days later, they asked me if I would speak. And I didn't know enough to say no. And I stood up and preached. I didn't know anything, but I did it with enthusiasm. I was well prepared, organized, kind of how my mind works. So I got asked a lot, to be honest with you. Maybe a year and a half. I remember one day at a service. I was just kneeling at the altar and praying and talking to God. And he said, you have to stop doing this. You're not ready. You're saying stuff you don't even know. You're not ready. I remember pulling away from everything. I wouldn't do anything, I just couldn't. I had no right. Spent six months just asking God to come and fill me with His Spirit and change my inner life so that I, that moment of surrender was critical. I wouldn't be here today if that had not happened. A few years later, I was pastoring in Smith Falls. I told you about that a little bit 100 converts, 90 converts in six months, and it was amazing, which is absolutely wonderful. Listen, we have a a, a magazine in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada called The Testimony. This was so remarkable that I got written up in The Testimony. They interviewed me about this growth in our church. I'm in the middle of this revival, this growth in God. And God spoke to my heart, and He said, there's part of you you haven't given to me yet. You haven't surrendered everything yet. And I said, God, I'm in the middle of a revival. Look at all the people coming to faith. And God says, what has that got to do with anything? That's not you anyway, it's me. I said, God, I get written up in the testimony. And He wasn't impressed. I left Smith Falls for one year. I prayed the same prayer. This is—I don't know why it took me so long. But the key to self-love is starting with knowing God loves you. And the second key is the surrender of your life to Him. So for a solid year, I prayed, "Oh God, come, break my spirit and make it holy yours." It was a year? It took a year for me to get there. I don't even understand why it took so long, but I—maybe I, I was resistant. I went off to Bible college in 1980 when that happened. Spent a year there just saying, oh, God, I have so little to offer you. And took another year, prayed, God, would you come and heal my broken spirit? Well, you'd think you'd learn, wouldn't you? Then i go off to Sarnia. Sarnia is a great church, by the way, down in southwestern Ontario. And God helped us, and the church started to grow, and it was wonderful. We had a great time. And in the middle of all of that, I lost sight of God. I started preaching for the people. For six months, I preached for the people instead of for Him. It was awful. It's terrible. It's painful. And I was talking to God. guy. He said, well, you've got to change your spirit. Not about them. It's about me first. Any of you relate to this? It's just the death, death to self stuff? This is the heart of self-love. It begins with surrender, you see, and I remember I had to take a week of fasting and prayer just to break that spirit. And I remember coming back and the freedom to doing it for God again. And you may not understand this at all. Just a couple of years ago, I'm, old, I'm almost 77, folks. Just nuts to get this old this soon. But just, and I said to God, look, I don't, I don't want to really preach anymore. I Just so much work. There's so much effort and prayer goes into it. And so, I just tried to stop doing that. And God came to me and He said, in my soul, He said, Bill, I haven't given you many gifts. You're not tall. You're not good looking. You're not thin. You can't sing. You're not that great with people. I've discovered everybody over 60 and under six loves me. In between, I have problems. Just, and I I said, He said, I haven't given you many gifts. I believe, I, I believe He gave me a gift of the Word to make it live in people's hearts. He said, why would you take my gift to you and put it on a shelf? So another moment, that's why I'm here. I'm not here because I want to preach to you on Sundays. I'm here because I believe it's part of God's call for you and me to spend a short time together preparing you for a new pastor. And in the middle of all that, we're going to do it by pointing ourselves to God and allowing God to come and touch our hearts and teaching us again the power of surrender. Because when we surrender, the God who loves us comes and touches us and changes us and makes us His. We have to ask the question all the time who's on the throne of my life? Is it Him or is it me? And whenever we're on the throne of our life, self-love is unhealthy. Self-love is arrogant. Self-love doesn't work. But when He's on the throne of our lives, all of a sudden it changes. Do you know who we end up loving? This is amazing to me. It's not you and me that we love. It's the Christ in us that we come to love. And the transformation of grace that He comes and gives to us. So we love ourselves because God is in us, because God loves us. Changes everything. There's a whole new view. You and I, who are the object of God's affection, are transformed. I-, I love what the Scripture says. We love because He first loved us. We see, that's not exactly how the original was written. The original was written, we love because He first loved us. It doesn't say we love Him, actually. We, for, and it goes on and says, we really wrote a translator, as for us, let us be loving because He Himself first loved us. So we start with this surrender moment, and out of that love for God, we become transformed. He Himself first loved us, and He loves us still. We love ourselves because we love the person that God loves. That's it. Please don't be offended by this. I don't. I woke up this morning early, I love getting up in the morning, and I actually wake up every morning liking me, because God likes me. I woke up this morning aware that I actually love me, because God loves me. And as long as I stay in that place of surrender, that's not invalid. As long as we stay in the place of surrender, He's the Lord and we are not. He's in charge and we are not. And there's something so freeing and so liberating about being able to look in the mirror and say, wow, God, you love me today. When I was young and preached a little bit, I used to have some really good Sundays. And I'd stand in front of the mirror and I'd say, God, I bet you're glad I'm in your kingdom. And then I'd have some really bad Sundays, and I'd say, God, why did you ever call me to your kingdom? And I realized it was a difference. I would never look in a mirror and say, there's a man of God, because that's not true. But I could look in a mirror every single day and say, "There, God's man. Because whatever I am, whatever you are, we can give to God. And you become God's child, God's man, God's woman, God's young adult. You become that, because God loves you. It starts with Him, not with you. It's amazing. It's so liberating. It's so healthy. We love him because he loves us. It changes everything. Changes our worship. We don't worship now because we like the songs. Can I be honest with you? There's a lot of songs in Christendom I don't like at all. It's true. Every time I hear a song, I don't like I'm reminded of some old hymns. Hilarious. You remember the old hymn, he can do, uh, there's nothing God can do, it's not exactly, oh, what he's done for others, he'll do for you. Remember that old hymn? You remember that? So all of you, when you think of that, you think of healing and miracles and power and joy and anointing? Every time I sing that, every time I think of that, I think of Paul and Silas in jail and Jeremiah in a slime pit. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. That's not what worship is about. Worship isn't about you having another experience with God. Well, a dear lady said to me one Sunday morning as she was walking out the door, she said, you know, Pastor, I didn't get much out of today's service. That happens sometimes. There are moments I appreciate you, you can get your money back. But see, the truth of this, and I said to her, I said, here's the problem. It isn't about you. Worship isn't about us. Worship is about adoring the Father who loves us. That's what worship is. We had a great worship moment today. God came and met us. I love the songs. I love how we met with God in them. But God is revealing himself to us for our benefit, but also for his glory. Real worship is not about us, it's about him. Anybody say amen to that? Worship. Hmm. Serving. How, how could you be loved by God and not serve others? It's impossible. God's looking for more. You're also, folks, every one of you is a servant. Every one of you is somebody God wants to use. Every one of you, God wants to have doing something. Well, I'm old now. Well, you can pray, or you can write notes of encouragement, or you can pick up the phone, or you can serve in the kids' ministry when you're younger. There's a place for all of us to be involved in the kingdom. The issue is when you love yourself, unhealthily it's about us and we want the recognition and we want the accolades but when you love yourself the way God loves you and you love yourself because God loves you it's not about you it's not about who you serve it's the fact that you're being obedient to God and helping other people find God and you become unimportant that's a different kind of love it's so healthy it's so liberating you get generous because when you're generous you just can't help but be generous because the God who loves you has been generous with you I love this. The thought in this text is that the amazing love of God in Christ is the inspiration of all the love that stirs in our hearts. It awakens within us an answering love, a grateful love for Him manifesting itself in love for God, our neighbors, and ourselves. Makes us generous. Two more. This is radical, folks. Do you know know that God actually likes to hang out with you? God actually likes to be with you. God loves the sound of your voice. He just wants to be with you because He's your Father, and He loves you. And every time you're with Him, you say, I love you back. And every time you're with Him, you become more like His Son. And every time you're with Him, you have a greater sense of self-love because it's surrendered to Him. I'm not sure if you're getting this. I hope you are. This is so important. This is so life-changing. And the interesting thing is I want to talk to you about sin a little bit because I discovered a truth some years ago that in reality, when we're believers and when we sin, the truth is that it's often not a sin issue at all. It's actually a love issue. So for the believer, sin is not a sin issue. It's a love issue. Now, we all struggle with sin. Sin in the life of a believer is still common. And the problem is, folks, we have a tendency to fight sin at the wrong place. So let me give you an example. Do any of you have a favorite restaurant in Peterborough? Let me see your hands if you do. About six of you. I guess I'm not going out for lunch with the rest of you. Okay, let me try something else. How How many of you actually have a middle name? let me see your hands. Okay, I do not want you to think of your middle name. Do not think of your middle name. What are you all thinking about? Your middle name, because I've planted it in your mind See? And so that's what happens with sin often. We battle at the wrong place. So what happens is when sin is dominant in our lives, we get on our knees before God and we pray over the sin, and don't tell me this isn't true because it's true in me and it's true in you. You could actually get off your knees and go commit the sin. Because you've reminded yourself of the sin, and there's a pleasure to sin. Let's not say there isn't. The pleasure to sin and so we can offer it easily. We go commit the sin. We have lost instantly because all sin leads to death. Sin is not a good thing in the life of the believer. So we battle sin at the wrong place. We battle it in the sin itself. But before the sin comes this thing we call temptation. Now the truth of the matter is temptation comes to all of us, all of us, Jesus was tempted, all of us are tempted, and the truth in temptation is this. There's only two or three things that happen with temptation. On the one is the temptation comes and we battle 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 and we give in. And then sin wins again. And sin leads to death. Or we overcome the temptation, and we feel victorious, and we feel really good because we didn't give the sin this time. The problem is that temptation is coming back again, the dirty scoundrel. Because back again and again, am I the only one who knows this? Because back again and again, you can't battle sin at the place of sin. You can't battle sin at the place of temptation. The fight becomes unending and unwinnable. We actually need help. That's what Jesus did in the wilderness. He called for help. Jesus did two things in the wilderness when he was tempted. Do you remember those? He called on God for the truth, the word, and the spirit. That's how he overcame and Mark it says, Jesus went in the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, and He came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. If we're going to overcome sin in our lives and live in a love relationship with God that allows us to love God, love our neighbor, and ourselves, we have to overcome the sin of our life, and love is the way to do that. Because you see, the truth of the Spirit is this. We need the Spirit as much as Jesus did. Actually more, because He wasn't sinful, and we are. Here's the problem with that. We, we, we don't... Uh, we don't get the Spirit until we surrender. The key to the fullness of the Spirit is surrender again, we're right back to where we started. And we only surrender to people we actually trust. We only sur- surrender to people we're willing to yield our lives to. And when you yield your life to God, trust gets built, and then for the first time in our lives we actually know what it is to love God, sorry, to love God in a way, I'm going the wrong way, that actually works. Here's the deal, friends. If you get nothing out of this sermon, this can set you free from sins. It's what's done for me. Whenever I battle sin as a follower of Jesus, loved by God, in love with God, willing to love myself the way He loves me, and for the reasons He loves me, when I battle sin, it's not a sin issue, it's a love issue. It means this, that I, for some reason, have moved away from God's love means for some reason I've stepped away from the fullness of His love. And the minute I step back into His love, at that moment I yield my life to Him. God comes with the power of His Spirit and with the Word of knowledge, the Word of truth, and He steps into my life and He gives me the help I need to overcome the temptation. And when the you know, temptation is overcome, sin is defeated and I live victorious, not because of me, but because of Him. And every time I sin, I know, Whenever time I see myself tempted, I, re- I, have to, I don't look at my sin. I look at God and say, okay, God, where am I missing your love? How have I stepped away from you? And the minute we restore that, the minute we renew that, we become loved by God and we can love ourselves and sin is defeated. And we become overcomers in the name of God. Listen, learn, live for the Father. That's how it works. Band's coming back. I want you to end. I want to end with this. I'm loved by God. Would you say that? I am loved by God. Well, that was really weak. I've preached my heart out here, folks. Get the truth. I am loved by God. <laughs> I am loved by God. Say it. I just want you to believe it. Don't forget to love yourself. There's a healthy love that comes when we know that we are loved by Him. And that just sets us so free. Oh, dear. I love what Leonard Ravenhill said. Oh, sorry, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, our great forgiveness verse. If you've been guilty of not loving yourself, today's the day to fix that. I love what Leonard Ravenhill said. Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? You ready? You're one of those things. You're one of the people that God thought was worth Christ dying for. It's okay to live for your spiritual life in Him. It's a healthy thing to do that because God loves you. One last thought, if God loves me, I can love me. If God loves me, I can love me. I told you about uh, Smith Falls and that whole year of prayer. God, come and break my spirit and make it yours. And then God, come and heal my broken spirit. Coming out of that was a third prayer. And I want to leave that with you today. Oh God, help me to be what you want me to be so I can do what you want me to do. Let's stand. I want you to say it with me. Oh God, help me to be What you want me to be, so I can do what you want me to do. One more time. Oh God, help me to be what you want me to be, so I can do what you want me to do. God loves you. You're a child of God. You can actually love yourself in a healthy, godly way that will set you free to truly love other people the way God does and to love God in fullness like you've never known. And not only does it make you serving and not only does it make you generous, but it helps you overcome sin. Because for the first time in your life, you battle sin at the right place. You overcome sin by the love of God and your surrender to His love.